0: Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. In today's episode, are we headed towards another financial meltdown? And what can we do regarding risks and investments?
1: The economic recovery is pretty much playing out how we anticipated with the only major surprise so far, the stock markets continued disassociation with our depressed economy, including a steady stream of bankruptcies, debt accumulations, and slowing rehiring. I remind myself why I'm so passionate about following the financial and job markets. My parents and grandparents experienced impacts of major economic trends, as well as the Great Recession in 8 They learned to pivot in major ways to preserve or improve their family's well-being, and so do we now. As I was told, particularly by them, during the Great Depression, they lived day by day with no one capable of knowing that it would last most of the decade of the 1930s. They learned never to ask the question, could it get worse? It did get worse. During the Great Depression, the nation experienced the Dust Bowl, which decimated our nation's core agricultural states and impacted U.S. food supplies. I should say that my family had an ancestry farm in the state of Kansas that was uh, purchased from the railroad for pennies per acre in the 1860s, so the Great Depression particularly impacted them as they made their living in agriculture. During that time, many banks failed, savings and loans accounts disappeared, farms were bankrupted, and unemployment soared. Then, World War II impacted the global economy in addition to mass devastation of lives and properties outside the United States. World War II was followed by total reconstruction of the world's product supply chains, the termination of the remaining British Empire, and emergence of America's industrial and financial might. With decades of prosperity ahead, including home building in the suburbs, lifelong employment plans with defined benefit retirement obligations, and new international trade and political alignments. So to my point, it's easy to be caught up in major trends and trend changes. It's better to try to prepare for them as we've had major economic shocks and traumas 40 or more times since 1776. Preparation includes anticipation and risk mitigation. No one is capable of both predicting major changes and their timing, but oftentimes we can recognize the likelihood of major issues dead ahead and that recognition gives us time to prepare. In my view, that's where we are today. We are facing large and growing risks to the status quo, but can't possibly predict the time and the magnitude of a future system shock. COVID itself arrived with no heads up, but the impact of COVID on a highly financially leveraged and economically stagnant economy that's loaded with high debt at every level, is now what we face, and this impact forces us to prepare for many worst-case scenarios. Many of you, thankfully, have followed us through most of our 22 podcasts and counting. You know our concerns expressed since late 2019, and they are still of record should you wish to review them again on our podcast site. Here are the key takeaways that continue to alert us for major emerging issues this year and next year. Number one, unemployment and underemployment across the United States is way underestimated by official unemployment reports and press releases. When the headline unemployment was reported last year, the U3 series, as three to four percent, It displaced the official U6 report, which is much more inclusive, and reported unemployment last year of 7 to 8%. Today, the reported 10 to 11%, which is a U3 report, way underestimates the actual economic issues, as the U6 report today is 16 to 17% unemployment. I'll leave it to you to Google U6 official unemployment report to find out the details it does include in addition to the headline and underreported U3. But even 16 to 17 percent unemployment understates the real situation as it does not count part-time workers who have lost their jobs or on furloughs. How big is the real unemployment? Private labor economists forecast approximately 30%, and that's after improvements we've seen in the past couple of months. In addition, I'll point out that that's certainly after last month's official report, which included an estimate of 4.8 million reported returning job holders in the restaurant, hospitality, and government workers, importantly. Here's a big issue, not contained in the official press releases or the media commentary. Evidence is accumulating that the jobs coming back are importantly part-time jobs. Let me repeat that. Many of the jobs that are reported as coming back in May, June, July are importantly part-time jobs. For example, in July, 1.8 million jobs returned, but almost half of them, 803,000 were part-time, or about almost 50% of the total. Additionally, but a separate point, the number of people working part-time is estimated at 24 million, with many looking for but not finding full-time jobs. Ms. Kate Bond, D-A-H-N, Director of Labor Market Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, quotes, Even if workers are coming back, it's to jobs that pay less, unquote. Allow me to create another reminder of a topic we covered previously. Many workers looking for employment are excluded from the official 10.2% reported unemployment rate. This official report fails to include 7.7 million workers who are excluded from the workforce technically because they've been employed too long to be counted, even though they continue to look for jobs. A related reminder is that the official statistics make an assumption each month that new businesses are created. In July, this assumption, which cannot be verified, created 241,000 presumed new jobs. Personally, I cannot imagine many new businesses created and employing new workers during this crisis environment. On the plus side, many states are training and hiring new contact tracers for COVID-19, and this may account for increases in recent government hiring data. The impact of these new contact tracing teams of thousands per state will be discussed and evaluated by others, and, and obviously at a later date. I only note here that recent employment trends may not reflect many new green shoots of growth for our economy and may not be reflecting the likelihood of vibrant future full-time growth. And why does this matter to me and why now? It matters as the financial system as we know it is approaching a meltdown again, in my view. We approached a meltdown in 08-09 as the Federal Reserve bailed out banks, adding $3 trillion of new money. This time, the Fed has added $3 trillion of new money, plus Congress has added $3 trillion of new debt, and we're not even yet in the eye of the financial storm, much less passing through it. Additionally, many large cities and states are moving into the insolvency pipeline. They are postponing pension fund true-up contributions as they need to keep the cash to operate with the lower tax revenues coming in from fewer businesses due to bankruptcies and more unemployed wage earners. To say nothing of the commercial real estate crisis, and the commercial real estate obviously is a big payer of property taxes. All of this when cities and states face more demands for unemployment compensation and entitlements. Government services are facing cutbacks, and so much more than the controversial policing and crime prevention budgets. Couple these issues with the present outward-bound migration from inner cities and high-tax states. Congress will face more deadlocks and internal wars from now to the election, and in my view, even after the election, no matter which side wins. The Federal Reserve has the unscripted job of keeping the U.S. out of depression, the Western world functioning financially, national, state, and local governments funded, and most importantly for them, our banking system, solvent. I expect more Fed programs and more new creation of money, with the risk that the dollar will become unstable. As you know, it's been in decline for the past several months. So far, most or all of the Western economies have similar issues. So all currencies may suffer versus other sorts of value include residential high-end real estate, precious metals, other savings alternatives, and high-quality dividend-paying stocks, just to name a few. I'm preparing for the following scenario, but I'm unsure about timing and impact. If I'm too early or simply wrong, then I'll live with it. But if I'm right or even partially right, then I know I've prepared for it. First of all, I would mitigate, and I have been mitigating, any risk of owning long-term bonds. And those would be with maturities of 10 to 30 years. And seriously questioning those that have 5 to 10 year maturities. At least this is my position through this year and likely well into next year. The problem is, when interest rates do go up from almost zero now to even a mid-digit level, long-term bond prices will go down as much as 50%, and that would be true for the 30-year bonds in particular. As interest rates go up, bond prices go down, and brokerage accounts will show the market value of the new bond prices, which in a brokerage account will be lower and lower. I've seen this in other cycles. It's a reality. Secondly, as described in our prior podcasts, inflation before COVID was running at much higher rates than the official data showing only 2 or 3% a year. I've concluded it was at least double, so 5 to 7% or more. With the decrease of China imports and rebuilding our supply chains, I expect inflation to be identified as an official problem in early 2021, maybe before. This event will move long-term interest rates up and bond prices down in my view. It may be six months away, it may be a year away. Number three, the stock market will adjust and maybe really quickly to the difference between the record high prices today and the record low Main Street business and employment performance. In the past major crises, the stock market has had several large declines before moving ultimately to new highs. I expect one, two, or maybe more large declines this year and next but also expect a growing stock price over the longer term say three to five years for me i don't want to own stocks different from the ones that prospered during covid unless they are high quality dividend paying stocks or those related to alternative investments such as high quality precious metals miners or bullion funds at this point i'm thinking the stock market is dividing itself into differentiated trends For example, the NASDAQ may continue to increase based on its technology weightings, while the small business indices like the Russell indices may decline into 2021-22. The S&P and Dow may be creating more similar trends apart from the NASDAQ and the Russell, but have significant volatility for the balance of this year. Until I get more confidence I prefer to conserve cash or increase my cash allocation with perhaps some new potential investments in high-quality, stable dividend companies with a small allocation in precious metals mining stocks. I appreciate that gold and silver are themselves really volatile, but the new levels reached imply much higher profits for the mining stocks. And the mining stocks don't have the daily volatility of gold and silver's ups and downs. My assumption is the global financial crisis, including massive money creation and borrowing, will continue and keep precious metals prices near or above today's record prices, at least for gold. There are mining stock indices that contain 50 or more company stocks, so broad diversification in this industry is not so difficult. One needs to understand each person's individual risk tolerance and time horizons, as alternative investments such as precious metals and even certain real estate may not be comfortable for everyone. So I don't think anyone can make a universal recommendation, but these are ideas that I think are very important. Finally, the credit markets are tightening even though interest rates are really low. I don't want to borrow and add to any debt, but if I did, I'd consider doing it now before the credit markets become more restrictive the large banks have significantly tightened their lending standards and continue to substantially add to their loss reserves. They're becoming almost totally risk adverse. With more bankruptcies in the national pipeline, this aversion, I think, is going to become more and more pronounced. And credit may reflect low interest rates, but credit may largely be unavailable. As we move through our present panic or crisis, keep in mind our country has successfully navigated 40 or more severe crises before. We will come through this one as well, but more discomfort and challenges are bound to arrive this year and next. Be cautious, stay well. Thank you.
0: Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director, Roger Tornaden. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.